You were listening to <clears throat> a band. Oh, the the YouTube thing said it was Miles Davis, but it's not Miles Davis. It is Hannibal Marvin Peterson on trumpet, John Hicks on piano, Richard Davis on the bass, and Tatsuya Nakamura on the drums. It's a 1992 album called "This Now's the Time. And the song was, of course, Smoke's, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. And, you know, that came on while I was sitting here finishing my breakfast this morning while I'm sitting here in the studio space. And I was looking around. And today's one of my days that I'm feeling kind of down because I just worked two days in the art classes at high school and this is my day off of course and uh, it never fails it's like I when I work a couple of days in a row like this I can barely move the next day I have this back problem anyway um, so yeah I'm sitting here trying to just take it easy but what's upsetting to me is I had talked about in the last cast about my emotion around going back to Denmark and I had sort of made it I don't know what this is going by my house right at this moment of course it's the street sweeper <laughs> on the other side of my house a street there so it'll probably be back around my side in a minute um but I had mentioned it on my Facebook page about wanting to make the decision and finally take the leap and try again to get over to Denmark to stay, you know? And this morning, when I feel the way I do, and I look around the place and I think of all the things that have to happen before I can even do that, uh, I get depressed, to be honest. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it. And that is my dream. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to manage it. So, yeah. Smoke gets in your eyes. All right. That's the beginning of my next reading on Emily Carr. Okay, so the cleaning truck the street sweeper just went by so I think I'll start now I'm trying to hold back tears today again weird it's basically uh, acknowledgement that my dreams may not always come true who knows so we're on the chapter of birds I think that's where we are in Emily Carr's Growing Pains. We were going to try to finish up this last two chapters so I could get to the last part of the book for the next time, I think. Yes. All right. Birds. <clears throat> Excuse me. I worked in Bushy till late autumn, then decided to winter again in St. Ives. 
But first I must return to my London boarding house and get my winter clothing from a trunk stored at Mrs. Dodd's. We were allowed to store trunks in her basement at tuppence a week. A great convenience for students like me who were moving around. Always, when approaching London, a surge of sinking awfulness swept over me. As we kept as we came to its outskirts and the train began slithering through suburban manufacturing districts. Open country turned to human congestion. Brick and mortar pressed close both sides of our way. Ache of overcrowded space, murk, dullness, stared from behind the glazed fronts and backs of brick houses. No matter how hard I tried, I could not take interest in manufacturing districts. They wilted me. Love of everything that swamped me in the country was congealed here, stuffed away like rotten lettuce. Nothing within me responded to the hum of machinery. I have an aside here, interestingly. I remember an artist I used to chat with frequently I don't know she's in Seattle now but um that's when she had her studio out at the Venetia Arsenal where I used to have mine um she used to talk about she could create more beauty in a place of ugliness like the ugliness of the arsenal the smokestacks and the industrial look of things helped her create her beautiful abstracts so interesting concept and also interesting that it did didn't help Emily Carr obviously I'm not really sure I think I think I'm more on the side of Emily Carr although I do get creative when I'm in a city in downtown and I see reflections and windows and different lines of buildings but um, yeah overall I think I'm a, a nature gal okay back to the text a crawling slither and the train oozed into the slot allotted slot opened her doors and poured us into Houston's Claire glare and hurry worry about luggage came first to me, the wonder is that any ever was found. No checking system, identification established solely by means of pointing a pointing finger. The hot, hard pavements of London burned my foot soles. Why must you fuss so immediately upon coming to town? I inquired angrily of my aching feet and took a huge china water pitcher from my cubicle to the floor below for hot water. The chair was straight and very long, the jug of water heavy. Only one step more, but one too many. I reeled. Every step registered a black bump on me. There I lay in a steaming pool among pieces of broken pitcher. I might have been an aquatic plant in a fancy garden. The steaming water seeped beneath the doors of rooms. I hurt terribly, 
but the water must be mopped up. My groans brought students to doors, which they slammed too, slammed too quick and grumpily to keep the water out of their rooms. I was unable to rise the next morning. I sent a wire to Mildred. Tumbled downstairs, can't come. Mildred sent the carriage and insisted. So I went. I managed to keep going until bedtime. That night is a blur of awfulness. When Mildred came into my room the next morning, she sent quickly for the doctor. Two nurses came. Straw was laid on the pavement to dull the rumble, even of those elegant, smooth, rolling carriages. For six weeks I lay, scarcely caring which way things went. Send me to a nursing home, I begged, but Mrs. Compton's cool hand was over mine. Go to sleep, little motor, we're here. She always wore three rings, a hoop of rubies, a hoop of sapphires, and a hoop of diamonds. Even in the darkened room, the gems glowed. They are the only gems I have ever loved. They were alive and were on a loved hand. The doctor came and came. One day, after a long, long look at me, he said, You Canadians, I notice, don't take kindly to crowded cities. Try the seaside for her, Mrs. Compton. There will be trees and air, I thought, and I was, and was glad. There were no trees. The small, private, convalescent home was kept by a fool. Because she had nursed in the German royal family, she fancied herself. Every day she took, her, she took their royal highnesses photographs from the mantle and kissed their ugly faces before us all. It made us sick. She was the worst kind of snob ever made. The sea was all dazzle and the sands white. My room was white, even the blinds. I asked for dark. The glare hurt my head. If I sat in dark corners, nurse said I was morbid. From my window, I saw a scrub willow tree. I took a rug and lay in the, in the little back lane under the willow. Looking up into its leaves, rested my eyes. Nurse, nurse rushed out, furious. She shrieked, morbid nonsense, get out onto the beach. Let sunshine burn the germs out of you. <clears throat> I was wretched, but I shammed robust health to get away from her house. I fooled the nurse so that she let me travel to Noel's mother. Noel's mother. She had come several times to Belgrave Square and said, Come to us as soon as they will let you travel. Don't wait to be well. Come and get well in our garden. My four boys to wait on you. The journey relapsed me. I was so desperately ill that they wired to Canada. I did not know that until my little until my sister Lizzie marched into the room. They sat her they sent her because she was on the edge of a nervous breakdown, and they thought the trip would do her good. It was bad for both of us. This sister and I never got along, got on smoothly. We nearly sent each other crazy. 
She quarreled with my doctor and my nurse, got very homesick, wanted to take me home immediately. The doctor would not let me travel. She called him a fool, said he knew nothing. She scolded me. I went to a London specialist. He was as determined about the travel as my own doctor. Complete rest, freedom from worry and exertion for at least one year. Wow. He recommended an open-air sanatorium, and above all that, my sister go home, leave me. Lizzie was very, very angry. She refused to go because of what people would say. My luck, by luck, my guardian and his wife came tripping to the old country. When my guardian saw me all to bits, tears ran down his cheeks. Anything to get you well, Millie, he said, and prevailed on my sister to return home, leaving me in a sanator- sanatorium. No work for me for at least one year. East Anglia. East Anglia, or Angelia, Angelia, Anglia, I think it is. East Anglia Sanatorium was primarily for tuberculosis. They also took patients like myself who required rest, good feeding, and open air. The sanatorium was situated in a beautiful part of England. I was there for 18 months, surrounded by slow dyings and coughing. But for birds, I doubt I could have stood it. The countryside was alive with songbirds. It was gentle, royal, rolling country, open fields, little woods, such as lo- birds love. There were wild rabbits. There were wild. There were wild rabbit warrens too, so underme- undermined with rabbit holes that few humans walked there. The birds had it all to themselves and let me share. I could not walk as long as the lung patients were made to. And sorry, let me start that again. I could not walk as as the lung patients were made to under doctor's orders. Slow, carefully timed walks. I was kept in bed a good deal. When up, I was allowed to ramble where I would. My only restriction was do not overtire. I would lie in the near woods for hours watching the birds. Everyone, excuse me, everyone was very good to me. The sanatorium was run entirely by women, women doctors, women gardeners. The head doctor came down from London twice a week. Often she talked with me about Canada. She had a desire to go there. England beats Canada in just one thing, I said. What is that? Songbirds. Why don't they import some? They did, but in such a foolish way they all died. Poor trapped adult birds, terrified to death. Could it be successfully done? I know how I'd go about it. First, I would hand near... Excuse me. First... I would hand rear nestlings to take them to Canada, take them to Canada, keep them in semi-captivity in a large outdoor aviary. I would never liberate those old birds, but let them breed till there was a strong band of young ones to free. Sounds reasonable. Go ahead, said the doctor. You mean I could raise my little birds here? 
Why not? Open air, birds in plenty. My life began again. I sent to London for books on how to hand-raise English songbirds. I decided to concentrate on thrushes and blackbirds. One month now and they would start nesting. Buds on hedgerows were no more than reddish bulges when blackbirds and thrushes began hurrying twigs and straws into larger crotches and firming sticks for foundations, lining the nests with mud. Mother Thrush and I were friends long before the eggs hatched. She did not suspect me of being a sneak thief. I took young birds, nest and all, just before consciousness chased the blank from the fledgling's eyes. Once they saw it was too late, for they cowered down in the nest and would not feed. My hand must be the first idea in their brains connected with food. Had they, had they seen their feathered mother before me, they would have preferred her. Mother Thrush was delighted to be relieved of her responsibility. She was already planning her next nest. If you went out after a steal early next morning, she was busy building again, quite happy. Had I taken but half of her family, left the rest for her in the old nest, she would have let them die. My nurse was cooperative, was cooperative. Anything that relieved the flat monotony of sun life was welcomed by the patients. They were all twittery over the birds for Canada. Suddenly they became interested in ant hills and, crub and grubs. Offerings were left for my birdlings on my window ledges when patients came from walks. Soon I had all the nestlings I could care for. The nests stood on a table by my bedside. I fed the birds every two hours between dawn and dusk, poked, poking the food into their gaping mouths with a tiny pair of pinchers I made out of wood. My nestlings grew with such furious intensity, you almost saw the feathers unfold. The biggest surprise was when inspiration first touched the wings and wriggling to be free from the crowding of brothers, the fledgling rose to his feet, flopped one wing over the side of the nest. Then suddenly he knew the ecstasy of flight. Once having spread his wings, never again could he endure the crowded nest. Oh, I knew how it felt. Hadn't I been thrilled when, I, when first I felt freedom? Now London had winged me, but I had <clears throat> once known what it was to be free. When they had mastered flying and feeding, the birds were put into a big cage built for them in the yard. All the sand loved my birds. The sand is short for, I guess, sanatorium. sanatorium. Old Mr. Oakley, broken by the boar, the boar war, Racked by coughing, crawled by the aid of a nurse and a stick to the cage every morning to watch my birds take their bath. Therese, the dying child in the room next to mine, tapped in our special code. How are the birds? I would scrabble little taps 
all over the wall to describe their liveliness. Gardeners left tins of grubs and worms on my windowsill. Cooks sent things from the kitchen. Patients took long-handled iron spoons on their walks and plunged them into anthills to rob the ants of their eggs for my thrushes. Kitchen, kitchen maids donated rhubarb and cabbage leaves to lay on the grass. These, watered, drew the little snails to their underneath cool bird delicacies. When the thrushes and blackbirds were out of hand, I took two nests of bullfinches to rear. These were the sand darlings. If a patient was feeling sad, a nurse would say, lend the soldiers, and off would go to the cage with a row of little pink-breasted bullies sitting, singing, and dancing with the bullfinch comic shuffle, with the bullfinch comic shuffle to cheer somebody, somebody's gasping despondency. Oh, the merry birds did help. The big Scotch house doctor christened me Bird Mammy because one day she paid her rent. The, the big Scotch house doctor christened me Bird Mammy because one day she paid her rest hour visit to find five baby bullfinches cuddled under my chin. Their wings had just become inspired. This was their first flight and made to me the only mother they had ever known. <laughs> Golly. What birds meant to the East Anglia San, only those who have lain helpless among slow-dying know. The larks hoisting their rippling songs to heaven, sinking with fluttering paws back into an open field. The liquid outpourings from thrush and blackbird throats. A great white owl floating noiselessly past our open rooms, turned her head this way and that, the lights of our rooms shining into her gleaming eyes. A sudden swoop, another field mouse's career finished. Birds of East Anglia, you almost compensated for torn lungs and overwork breakdowns. On her weekly visits to the sanatorium, the London specialist scuttled past the door of my room, ashamed to face me. For months, she had promised to write home to my people. It took six weeks for an answer to a letter in those days. Every week, the little house doctor pleaded with the big specialist. Don't forget to write to Canada about Mammy's condition. I was getting nowhere. Nothing was being tried to help me. Each week, the big one would say, Dear me, I have been too busy to think of it. I will do it this week. Then she would neglect writing again. Little house doctor was bitter about it. I was disheartened. Had my check, had my check to the sand not come regularly, the big one would have stirred herself to look into matters at once. Had I been a celebrity or possessed of a title, she would have remembered. I was only a student who had overworked. The East Anglia Sanatorium was a company. The London doctor was its head. She sniveled over me, pretending devotion. 
my faith in this country was broken. I had no faith or confidence in the big bragging doctor. She was a tuberculosis specialist. I saw patients contract all sorts of other troubles in that sand. As long as their lungs healed and added glory to her reputation, nothing else mattered. The next chapter is Bitter Goodbye. When they were about nine months old, my birds began to get very quarrelsome, damaging each other by fighting. From my bed, I heard trouble in the cage, but I could not go to them. I had now been in the sanatorium for over a year. I was losing, not gaining. At last, to my dismay, I found that all my contemporaries were either dead or had gone home to continue the outdoor treatment there. A few, very few, were cured. The big Scotch house doctor who was at the sand when I came had been succeeded by a little English woman doctor of whom I was very fond. Most of the old nurses, too, were gone. New ones had come. One day, the London doctor introduced me to a visiting physician she had brought down with her for the weekend. She said of me, This is the sand's old-timer. Shame swept me as she said, Sixteen months, isn't it, Mammy? She turned to the visitor, explaining. She's Mammy. She's Mammy to every bird in the neighborhood, raising nestlings to take back to Canada, where they have a few songsters. Canada. Why I was no longer... Canada. Why I was no nearer the voyage than I had been sixteen months back. I knew by everyone's gentleness to me by the loving evasive letters I received from old patients. It was not expected I would ever get back to Canada. I was troubled about my birds, the old friends who had been willing, had, the old friends who had always been willing to lend a hand with them when I was laid up were gone. Newcomers were indifferent. They did not know the birds, did not know me. The birds themselves were increasingly quarrelsome. The whole situation bothered and worried me. I pondered, unhappy. At last the doctor had written to my people in Canada. It was decided to try a severe, more or less experimental course of treatment. A special nurse was brought down from London, a masseuse, callous, inhuman, whom I hated. The treatment consisted of a great deal of massage, a great deal of electricity, and very heavy feeding. This nurse delighted in telling horrible stories, stories of deformities and of operations while she worked over me. Great God. Sounds pretty abusive. Ugh. <clears throat> Excuse me. I need to stand up today. I can't sit very long. So she was very heavy feeding 
Her favorite story was of a nephew of hers born without a nose. One hole in the middle of his face served as both nose and mouth. It sickened me. I appealed to the doctor who forbade nurse talking to me during the long hours of massage. This angered the woman. She turned mean to me. The day before treatment started, I said to the little house doctor whom I was fond of, what about my birds? The treatment was to last from six to eight weeks. The doctor was silent. I went silent too. I asked, may I get up for half an hour today? You're too weak, mammy. There's something I must attend to before treatment starts. Your nurse will do anything. This thing I, only I can do. She gave a humoring consent. She knew, no, sorry. I knew she thought it made little difference. Her eyes filled. She was a dear woman. In the quiet of the rest hour, when nobody was about, I slipped from my room out through a side door in the corridor into the yard where my birdcage stood. The birds heard my stick, my voice. They shrieked delightedly. I caught them, every one, put them in a box, which I took back into my bedroom. Panting heavily, I rang my bell. Send doctor. Doctor came hurrying. Chloroform my birds. Oh, mammy, why not free them? I love them too much. Village boys would trap the tame things. Slow starvation on a diet of soaked bread and earthworms. Please, doctor, I've thought it all out. She did what I asked. The next day I was moved into a quiet, spacious room. Treatment under the new nurse began. She would allow no one to come into the room but the doctor. I was starved on skim milk till they had bought, brought me as low as they dared. Gradually they changed starvation to stuffing, beating the food into my system with massage, massage electricity, four hours of it each day. The nurse was bony-fingered, there was no sympathy in her touch. Every rub of her hand antagonized me. The electricity sent me nearly mad. I was not allowed to read, to talk, to think. By degrees, I gained a little strength, but my nerves and spirit were in a jangle. By and by, I got so that I did not want to do anything to see anybody, and I hated the nurse. I had two months of this dreadful treatment. 18 months in the East Anglia Sanatorium, all told. Then the doctor said, Now we will let, now we will try letting you go back to work. Wow. I had no idea. <clears throat> That's horrible. Okay. Work. I had lost all desire to work now. When first ill, I used to ask, when can I get back to work? When can I get back to work? Continually, and they answered, when you have ceased wanting to. I suppose they had got me in that place now. Thought they had killed eagerness and ambition out of me. Nurse took me up to London. I, I spent a wretched day or two in the house of the big one. At the time, she had a she was in a burst of exhilaration because she had summoned, been summoned to attend the wife of the Dean of St. Paul's. If it was not Lady This or Lord That, it was the very Reverend Dean. 
stretching after big pots, yearning to hang on to the skirts of titled of worthwhile people, English worship of aristocracy. Oh, I loathed it. I left the doctor's house and went down to Bushy, forbidden ever to attempt working in London again. <clears throat> the Bushy studios were closed. Classes would not reopen for two weeks. I took rooms in the village, disheartened, miserable, broken, crying, always crying, couldn't stop. The Sands little house doctor took a long roundabout cross-country journey from the sand to bushy, especially to see me. I cried through her entire visit. She was deeply distressed at my condition, and I was shamed. Through my tears and pouring and a pouring rain, I watched her wash down Bushy High Street. Yet doctor's parting words had done me vast good. This is what they were. Sorry, let me put this down for a second. Mm. Okay, let me go back. this is what they were I realize how hard it is after 18 months of absolute inertness to find yourself again adrift nobody, nothing, weak as a cat I am proud of the fight you are putting up after she had gone she ran back up the steps again to take me in her arms hold me a moment tight tight, saying say again I am proud of you. Oh, how could she be proud of such a bitter-hearted, sloppy old coward? In my room, she saw evidence of trying to pick up life's threads again. She guessed the struggle. I wished I had not cried all the time she was there. I'd made her laugh. Yet, I'll make little doctor and all of them laugh, I vowed and running to my trunk dug up a sketchbook and fell to work. Two weeks I labored incessantly over a satire on the sand and on the special treatment. I wrote long doggerel verses and illustrated them by some 30 sketches in color, steadily crying the while. The paper was all blotched with tears. I just ignored the stupid tears. The skit was funny, really funny. I bound the pages together, posted them off to Little Doctor, waited. Promptly her answer came. Bravo! How the staff roared. All the staff but Matron and me, we knew its price. The world was upside down. The ones I had aimed to make laugh cried. I love doctors and matrons' tears all the same, and believe it or not, their tears dried mine. I went back to, doc to Mr. Whitley's studio and slowly got into work again. It was not easy. I was weak in body, bitter in spirit. In about three months, I was, I was to be allowed to travel. Five years and a half in London. What, I had, what had I to show for it but struggle, just struggle which doesn't show, or does it, in the long run. Mrs. Radcliffe, Mrs. Denny, Mildred, had all been down to the sand from time to time to visit me. Just now I could not bear Mrs. Radcliffe's bracing, Mrs. Dennington's religion, Mrs. Compton's and Mildred's love. No, my pride could not face them, not just now. 
Without goodbyes, I slipped through London, straight to Liverpool. Goodbye to my high hopes for work, to my beautiful birds, to my youngness. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Surely enough goodbyes. Yet my ungracious creeping past those in London who were so kind to me had always left deep down in me a sore feeling of shame and cowardice. I did not know the land which Hayes was allowing, sorry, I did not know the land which Hayes was swallowing was Ireland. I only knew I was glad to be leaving the old world. Sure, it's Ireland is your, sure, it's Ireland is your home too, an Irish voice said at my side. I looked into the blue eyes of an Irish boy, homesick already. Canada is my home, I replied. He faded into the crowd. I never saw, but I thought often again of that kind boy who took for granted that my sadness was homesickness, same as his. Sad I was about my failures, but deep down my heart sang. I was returning to Canada. have to be the saddest chapters I've read so far, I think. Now, she's going back to Canada, so in the next part of the book, that will probably be all when she's back. We're into part three next time. Thank you for listening. I hope this didn't make it too somber. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a new day, right? And we all have to do what's right in front of us. And, you know, I could relate to some of the feelings she was having. I just thought, as I was reading about her struggle, I thought, yep, it doesn't really matter what age we are. We have to just keep at it. And... Sometimes we are just down and we don't have it in us and we have no energy. And then other days we're fine and we can do it again. It is all about one day at a time, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, have a good day, everyone. <laughs>